This is a National Arts Center podcast. Find more great NAC podcasts on the performing arts at nacpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Center on iTunes and subscribe for free. Hello and welcome to the final Hinterviews podcast with Peter Hinton, produced by the National Arts Center English Theatre and coming to you from Canada's National Arts Center in Ottawa. I'm Sean Fitzpatrick. Over the past six seasons, we at the NAC English Theatre have taken you into the intimate world of the artists and creative minds behind the productions on stage at the National Arts Centre English Theatre. In these episodes, Peter Hinton chatted with a guest artist associated with a number of the productions, giving audience insight into what goes on backstage at the NAC. To mark the final interview, we have created a series of highlights featuring guests from over the past six seasons. Never fret, as a new series is on the horizon. Keep on the lookout for Salon Saturdays with Jillian Callie, which will be available on nacpodcast.ca. And now from June 2009, here's host Peter Hinton and Don McKellar talking about the origins of the Drowsy Chaperone. Let's do the Drowsy the Chaperone whole story. story. The we whole have to do this story. Yeah, it's yeah, an amazing okay, story. Okay. Um, <laughs> Lisa and Bob and I are old friends. We're high school friends. We, we, we met in grade nine, and we were, we were old friends. <laughs> and uh, in, uni- in high school, we did school plays, but also we founded a children's touring company uh, through Canadian Stage, and we went around Ontario, except not Ottawa. Uh, but <laughs> not, not a principle, just, <laughs> just as it happened, we didn't go to Ottawa. Um, and uh, so, and they were little musicals and things we created, and we kept together, uh, we maintained our friendship through high school, and then Bob was getting married uh, sometime later. Yeah, I'll get up for a minute. Uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll find a place for you. Yeah. Moment, you know, like a, um, and... Uh, and Bob, he was getting married to another performer, Janet Vandergraaff, and so the idea came up to come up with something <laughs> because she was the best man. And so she didn't want to do strippers, I guess. Uh, and uh, so she did a musical, which is pretty much the opposite. And, <laughs> and how long was it? Like, uh, but at, at some point there... How, yeah, how well, did this guy sorry, get involved? I'll start talking for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what happened is that I'd known Lisa for years through Second City at that time. Yeah. And Bob, actually, oddly enough, this is sort of unbelievable, the title The Drowsy Chaperone was the first thing. She had this idea for a show called The Drowsy Chaperone. Uh, that's all she had. Yeah, she's had that title for a while. She had it for a while, and she was banding it about. And <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough, that was never written. So uh, Bob, Bob said, I, maybe, did Bob say it? Why don't you do The Drowsy Chaperone? Or? Probably. At least he would claim. Yeah. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, so we came up with that. So we all, then she, did she ask you to? Yeah, then we sort of uh, started working. She had a few songs already kind of in mind and that she'd already done. And we kind of just built it around that. Then I mean, very quickly gone, what happened was, brought in. was she, uh, I said, well, come over to my place. It'll be easy. We'll just come up with something. Uh, it's Drowsy Chaperone, so it's, someone's got to be chap. You know, <laughs> drowsy chaperone. And, chaperone. Someone's and there's be a drowsy. reason she's drowsy. She's a chaperone. Uh, so this maybe it's a wedding. It's a wedding gift. So we had the wedding, and then there's got to be a reason that chaperoning is necessary. So there's 
uh, a, a conflict. It was this dumb character that we'd already had this idea of this character, Adolfo, which would would <laughs> would say the first line was him going, "What? I'm outraged." Or this is a is that it? Yes, <laughs> this is scandal. an outrage. This is a scandal. Yeah. So that was that was <laughs> that was taking so much. So we had to find yeah, somehow to way to fit this character in. <laughs> believe it or not, and the idea was to do it a kind of 20s musical. Obviously, it was it was sort of like a Astaire Rogers musical combined with a sort of uh, Marx Brothers. Yeah. style stuff and these were musicals that we loved and we'd always watched in high school and uh, so that there was the reason so the w we drew in those kind of characters we said oh well we need the best man one of those kind of best man characters we need uh, right. you know that she should be a showgirl so that all sort of came together sort of incredibly quickly we put it together quite quickly we wrote it um, and then was the, the show was done for the for the state members party. of the wedding. For yeah, the no, no, wedding. it was, it was done at the, the Rivoli. It was done at the, the Rivoli, Rivoli yeah, a little uh, club in Toronto. Club. And there was actually an ad in the papers, come see the original yeah. new music, <laughs> come to... Uh, and there were a number of baffled people that came and yeah. just showed up uh, yeah. and, and right. watched what this occasion. Because yeah. it was fully costumed. We didn't even know it was a stag party. <laughs> and, you know, it's a very small little stage. Um, what people Toronto. didn't understand, well, I think, when they read this story is that it wasn't full of in-jokes. In fact, it was pretty close to the weird show that it is now, the show within the show. Uh -huh. uh, it wasn't actually jokes about Bob and Janet, and that was in itself part of the joke that it had, they had nothing to do with it. Aside from their names. <laughs> yeah. Except their names, yeah. Bob Martin and Janet Vandergraaff, are the names of the lead characters in the show who are getting married. And Janet is a performer, so she was we, sort of the joke that she was giving up right. the stage, which she knew right. she wouldn't. From April 2009, here's Canadian playwright, actor, and stage director Robert Lepage. I was going to ask, because I know that when you built uh, the caserne, it was a sense of you felt like you were spreading yourself too thin and you had no home, mm -hmm. and that you wanted to have a home base. Yeah. I was going to ask, you know, because that was a long time ago, and you've still been out traveling the world, yeah. if you have felt like you have lost connection mm -hmm. to home, but it sounds like, in fact, is it no. the opposite? No, actually, I'm, I'm extremely, more than ever, uh, rooted and connected to to the reality of Quebec City. I was born there and, and, and I have all sorts of personal romantic reasons why I, I want to live there and, and, and sentimental reasons and, and philosophical reasons why I'm, I'm, I'm in Quebec City. But that's, that, that's what one should do. The thing, I, remember, I always remember what Michel Tremblay said Maybe if, poor Michel. I'm, I've I've been paraphrasing him with this, and I'm sure it doesn't have anything to do with probably he said in the first place. But like something like 20 years ago, um, he was commenting on on why would a a, a play like Les Belles Sœurs would be translated in 46 languages and played all over the world? What's the interest for people to talk about a miserable uh, bunch of women playing bingo in 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 in, in in the plateau in Montreal. What's what's the thing? And he said, well, because that's that's where that's where artists today uh, get it wrong, um, is that they want to be international. You know, so to be international, they don't talk about what concerns them in their community. They talk about what concerns the world. And of course, nobody nobody connects to that because there's no real blood in that. And if you want to be universal, talk about what goes on in your kitchen. And people, even if they don't understand all of the references, if they even find sometimes strange how we are the, the rules of, 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 of our culture, of our society, and all that, 
they, they feel drawn to the humanity of it and they recognize their own problems or issues or paradoxes. And, and that for me is a big thing, being, being international versus being universal. And being universal is really about talking about who you are and how you deal and, and the problems that we have within this country and within our, our own commun small communities and all that. And if you're honest about that and if you have, a, a, and if you have a, an interesting uh, way of, of showing and telling stories, then you will touch and move people all over the world. And, and, uh, and I feel that this too many young theater artists, or, or artists in general, film artists, right now, who, who are saying, okay, so what, what does the world want to hear? What does the world want to, they want to hear about you, they want to know you, you know? So stop speaking with that accent <laughs> <laughs> and stop uh, uh, cutting out uh, local references. They're mm -hmm. there. Here's Laurie Brown in conversation with Paul Gross in 2006. There's a funny th thing, though, about uh, Canadian audiences. and You're talking about a, there's too much distance between what mm. people are making and what the audience is. But I've heard this before, and it's funny. Someone will go and see a movie, and a Canadian movie, and perhaps they don't go to see a lot of Canadian movies, but they go see a Canadian movie, and they didn't like it. They come out and they say, I am never seeing another Canadian movie again. That was terrible. Yeah, and weird, and they don't do that with Swedish movies. You don't. I'm never seeing another Swedish film. <laughs> what is that about us? I don't know, but that sort of goes to the heart of the unanswerable Canadian question, what are we? And Well, I, I promised you to answer here tonight, so go ahead. All right. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> Get out your pens. I'm going to finally tell you what it means. No, I don't. You know, I don't think that's actually answerable. I did a show shot in Ottawa actually a couple of years ago that was a thriller, political thriller. And in the middle of there somewhere, the character I played who became a prime minister had a speech that said, "What? It, oh, right. It's really memorable too. You'd all know it. Well, I just had the first two words. Wait. Anyway, the gist of it is that the what it means to be Canadian, the question itself is the answer, that I think that's what we are. We are this really neat experiment that's con constantly in motion, and we don't have necessarily, you know, a bald eagle and a flag and 17, or whatever, to turn to. We're this country that's kind of fantastically underway, and, and the question itself is, what is our substance? And, but I think that it, it, because of that, we, 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 have kind, we have sort of cultural problems. And one of the biggest cultural problems in this country is Toronto. Um, and I really, I know I live there, but I mean it. It is a horrible town for, for its, the, the level of insecurity that breeds this unbelievably preening sense of superiority that's based on, on only an inferiority is really, it's a very strange place. And it particularly manifests itself in the press. Mm -hmm. And they are unbelievably horrible to Canadian artists in general, or anybody who happens to be Canadian and love stuff that isn't, or love it if you're not from Canada, or if you're from Canada but have gone somewhere else. I mean, they, they love it if you've had a success at the biennial in Vienna. Well, then you get a big splash, but if you've done a particularly great show, 
of your latest sculptures, any gallery in Toronto would get something pushed to the side. And the Globe and Mail is an important mag, uh, important newspaper for the country and has an awful lot to do with leading opinion, but it's very, you know, it's really weird that we have these Gemini Awards. Uh, I, I hate them for a whole bunch of weird reasons, but they are awards to recognize what we do in television. I hate them because they're kind of retarded. We handed out 114 awards. We make like eight shows. <laughs> it's like it's like the American Army handed out more medals than there were actually guys on the ground in Grenada. That's what we're like. But the Globe and Mail says there's a little blurb somewhere in the third or fifth page or something. Well, all of the papers across the country had great, huge pictures of the people who won, including my wife. And, mm. But the Globe, no. And I think that has, because Toronto is the largest of the English-Canadian cities, it has a very warping effect. It, dis it distorts how we look at our, our artistic scene. From September 2007, here's author Margaret Atwood talking about her play, The Penelope Ad. First off, how do you pronounce the name of the, of the play? <laughs> well, the you wanted is, me to ask that, yeah, I know it. The answer is, I don't have any idea. Uh, <laughs> but I have made a vow never to write anything again with the name I can't pronounce. But, so when I first thought of it, I thought of it as Penelope Ad, as in Iliad. But then people started calling it uh, Penelopead or Penelopead. Those are the only three ways. <laughs> so you can take your pick because it's up for grabs. Well, I U usage will determine it. Whoever says they're one the most will win. <laughs> I heard a great alternate title. Um, for the play, and I wondered if you were, if you'd thought of it yourself and were tempted, and that was The Hangmaid's Tale. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think you have a naughty side. <laughs> uh, no, actually, I didn't. Something strange you should mention it. I didn't actually think of that. And uh, if I had thought of it, I might not have written the piece. <laughs> <laughs> well, you came close to actually not writing the piece. It sounded like at one point you were squirming to get out of, out of the commitment to do it, of writing it as this, as this myth, part of this myth series. All right, here's the, here's the full story of the entire project. <laughs> Once upon a time, long, long ago, in a country known as Scotland, there was a young man called Jamie Bing. Jamie Bing took over a publishing company called Canongate, mm -hmm. and he did some pretty clever things. Among the clever things that he did was a book that I like a lot called The Assassin's Cloak. Mm -hmm. And The Assassin's Cloak is a book of diary entries uh, taken from many different years, many different diaries, many different people, but it's arranged as in uh, a calendar. So on January the 1st, you might read what Samuel Pepys said, and then you might yeah. skip to what Lord Byron said, and then you might go to what Siegfried Sassoon said in their diary on January the 1st. And you can go through it from day to day 
And then by the time it comes around to January 1st again, you've forgotten everything that happened, and you can start all over again. It's a very reusable book. I admire this book a lot. Um, I recommend it. You can have one in your bathroom, too. <laughs> and then on September 23rd, you know you're reading exactly the same thing that I'm reading on that day. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely communal yes. experience. Yes, it is. <laughs> this is what I think. So when Jamie Bing, Bing popped out from behind the potted palm in a hotel in Edinburgh at breakfast time and proposed this myths series, and I wish they had called it simply the myth series because the myths series <laughs> It's quite hard, hard to pronounce. It's like Ruth's Chris's Steakhouse. It's like that? Yeah. It's also like the Pink Panther, <laughs> the part where he says myths. <laughs> myths. <laughs> the myths series. Uh, I was in a weakened state, partly because I admired his publishing and partly because I hadn't had any coffee yet. And he proposed the following plan, that he and three other publishers that I think had been in the same bar at the Frankfurt Book Fair one night including our Louise Dennis of Knopf, Canada, had cooked up a plan to ask writers around the world uh, to choose a myth, any myth, and rewrite it any way they wanted to. It didn't have to be a myth from their own country. It could be any myth from anywhere. Rewrite it however they liked, but with a length stipulation. Mm -hmm. Didn't want long tomes, wanted this long. So I said I would do it, and I should never say I will do something before I've actually done it, because of then, of course, you can't do it. So I spent some time not being able to do it. I thought I should write a Canadian myth. And I did try several of those, and they didn't work. So I got to the point where I said to my British agent, whose name is Vivian, I said to Vivian, Vivian, I think I can't do this. Maybe we should just give... Jamie Bing back his paltry advance and uh, <laughs> or maybe he should double it <laughs> no because it was the same right for everybody mm -hmm. same right uh, that was the deal and tell him that I can't do it this was by transatlantic phone there was a frozen silence at which point Vivian became more British than she usually is and said well of course you can only do what you can do. And if you can't do it, you can't do it. You can't do it. But Jamie Bing will be gutted. <laughs> said. And now I'm going off to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, <laughs> which she did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when I come back, we'll have a little chat. <laughs> well, this time I was so terrified, both by the idea of gutting somebody. It's not a word we just toss around over yeah. here and by this little chat that I very swiftly wrote the Penelope ad, or the Penelope ad, so it would be all ready when she came back. <laughs> and finally, from 2009, here's actor Graham Greene discussing how he got into acting. Acting wasn't something that you had a passion for right at the beginning. You decided, you know, in high school you were going to be an actor. What were nope. you thinking in high school? I wasn't. <laughs> It was the 60s. <laughs> Don't even ask me the name of the school. Uh, no, I never really considered it. I wanted to be a draftsman. 
And uh, after I got out of high school, grade nine, of course, was the happiest four years of my life. <laughs> <clears throat> Then I decided to move on. <laughs> I was a carpet layer, a carpenter, a high steel worker, a welder, a construction labor, everything. I even was a draftsman. They found out I didn't like it. <laughs> so I didn't do anything for a while, and consequently got involved in the music business. And a friend of mine, Kelly J from Crowbar Days, I don't know if anybody knows Crowbar. Yes. Uh, we opened a little four-track studio in Ancaster, and the work there. I worked with various bands and did sound for a number of years, lighting. Did you like that lifestyle? Did you like being on the road with bands? Yeah, it was fun mm. when you're young. Mm. But then you find out you have no permanent address. It's like, where do you live? What's your address? It's that big blue pickup truck, or the big blue truck over there. Yeah. And a friend, there was always a lot of people hanging around the studio, coming and going, musicians, actors, artists, you name it. And one day this guy came in and he said, you know, you'd look great in this part of the script that I have. And I said, what? And he says, the script. I says, I've never seen a script before. What's it look like? So he put it down and <clears throat> says, read it. Just, just read it. I'll leave it with you. So this was on a Monday. Tuesday he came over. And I said, I read it. And he says, what do you think? I said, I don't know. I didn't get it. Well, read it again. Wednesday he comes over. So what do you think now? And I said, I, I don't know anything about this. I, I don't really want to be an actor. Friday he came over. I said, no, definitely not, definitely not. So Saturday, I see his car coming up the driveway. <laughs> and I turn out the lights. <laughs> he came up to the door and he says, I know you're in there, I can hear you breathing. <laughs> so I opened the door and I said, what? I, I don't want to be an actor, I don't know anything about it. I, have, I don't, don't I have no training, I don't uh, know anything about film. And he said, just, just go, do it. I said, I'll tell you what. I pulled out a deck of cards and put it on the console, and I said, well, cut cards. If I win, leave me alone. <laughs> and if you win, I'll do it. So he cut first. I forget what he picked out, but I pulled up the two of spades. <laughs> <clears throat> and... That next week, I was working, and I found out, this is great. <laughs> it's like the life of a dog. <laughs> they tell you to speak, you speak. <laughs> you know, they bring you food, water. <laughs> <laughs> and when they don't need you for that right then, they'll put you back in your kennel, which we call the dressing room. <laughs> and they dress you nice. <laughs> Until next time, this is Sean Fitzpatrick saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. This has been a National Arts Centre podcast produced in Ottawa by NAC New Media. 
send us your comments and questions. Email us at nacpodcasts at gmail.com. Visit the podcast section of the iTunes store, where you can rate and comment on this podcast. We love to hear from you. Remember, you can find more great NEC podcasts at necpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Centre on iTunes and subscribe for free. Until next time, goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre. Thank you.